Chapter Eight, Part Two of the Confessions of Arsène Lupin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Eight: Lupin's Marriage. The old duke had not spoken a word. With his eyes riveted on the strangers, he was listening in ever-increasing dismay. At times, the thought of the warnings given him by the prefect of police returned to his mind. They're nursing you, Monsieur le Duc. They are nursing you. He said in a hollow voice, Speak on. Finish your story. All this is ghastly. I don't understand it yet. And I feel nervous. The stranger resumed. I am sorry to say the story is easily pieced together and is summed up in a few sentences. It is like this. The Comte d'Andrézy remembered several things from his stay with me and from the confidences which I was foolish enough to make to him. First of all, I was your nephew, and yet you had seen comparatively little of me, because I left Sarzeau when I was quite a child, and since then our intercourse was limited to the few weeks which I spent here, fifteen years ago, when I proposed for the hand of my cousin Angélique. Secondly, having broken with the past, I received no letters. Lastly, there was a certain physical resemblance between Dandrézy and myself which could be accentuated to such an extent as to become striking. His scheme was built up on those three points. He bribed my Arab servants to give him warning in case I left Algeria. Then he went back to Paris, bearing my name and made up to look exactly like me, came to see you, was invited to your house once a fortnight, and lived under my name, which thus became one of the many aliases beneath which he conceals his real identity. Three months ago, when the apple was ripe, as he says in his letters, he began the attack by a series of communications to the press, and at the same time, fearing no doubt that some newspaper would tell me in Algeria the part that was being played under my name in Paris, he had me assaulted by my servants and kidnapped by his confederates. I need not explain any more in so far as you are concerned, uncle. The Duc de Sarzeau-Vendôme was shaking with a fit of nervous trembling. The awful truth to which he refused to open his eyes appeared to him in its nakedness and assumed the hateful countenance of the enemy. He clutched his nephew's hands and said to him fiercely, despairingly, "'It's Lupin, is it not?' "'Yes, uncle.' "'And it's to him. "'It's to him that I have given my daughter.' "'Yes, uncle, to him, who has stolen my name of Jacques d'Amboise from me, "'and stolen your daughter from you. "'Angélique is the wedded wife of Arsène Lupin, "'and that in accordance with your orders. "'This letter in his handwriting bears witness to it. "'He has upset your whole life, thrown you off your balance.' besieging your hours of waking and your nights of dreaming, rifling your townhouse until the moment when, seized with terror, you took refuge here, where, thinking that you would escape his artifices and his rapacity, you told your daughter to choose one of her three cousins, Mussy, D'Amboise, or Carche, as her husband. But why did she select that one rather than the others? It was you who selected him, uncle. At random, because he had the biggest income. No, not at random, but on the insidious, persistent, and very clever advice of your servant, Hyacinthe. The Duke gave a start. What? Is Hyacinthe an accomplice? No, not of Arsène Lupin, but of the man whom he believed to be d'Amboise, and who promised to give him a hundred thousand francs within a week after the marriage. Oh, the villain! He planned everything, foresaw everything! foresaw everything, uncle, down to shamming an attempt upon his life so as to avert suspicion, down to shamming a wound received in your service. 
But with what object? Why all these dastardly tricks? Angélique has a fortune of eleven million francs. Your solicitor in Paris was to hand the securities next week to the counterfeit d'Amboise, who had only to realize them forthwith and disappear. But this very morning you yourself were to hand your son-in-law, as a personal wedding present, five hundred thousand francs worth of bearer stock, which he has arranged to deliver to one of his accomplices at nine o'clock this evening, outside the castle, near the great oak, so that they may be negotiated to-morrow morning in Brussels. The Duc de Sarzeau Vendôme had risen from his seat and was stamping furiously up and down the room. "'At nine o'clock this evening,' he said. "'We'll see about that. We'll see about that. I'll have the gendarme here before then.' Arsène Lupin laughs at gendarme. Let's telegraph to Paris. Yes, but how about the five hundred thousand francs? And still worse, uncle, the scandal. Think of this. Your daughter, Angélique de Sarzeau-Vendôme, married to that swindler, that thief. No, no, it would never do. What then? What? The nephew now rose and, stepping to a gun-rack, took down a rifle and laid it on the table in front of the duke away in algeria uncle on the verge of the desert when we find ourselves face to face with a wild beast we do not send for the gendarme we take our rifle and we shoot the wild beast otherwise the beast would tear us to pieces with its claws what do you mean i mean that over there i acquired the habit of dispensing with the gendarme it is a rather summary way of doing justice but it is the best way believe me and to-day in the present case it is the only way once the beast is killed, you and I will bury it in some corner, unseen and unknown. And Angélique? We will tell her later. What will become of her? She will be my wife, the wife of the real d'Amboise. I desert her to-morrow and return to Algeria. The divorce will be granted in two months' time. The Duke listened, pale and staring, with set jaws. He whispered, are you sure that his accomplices on the yacht will not inform him of your escape? Not before to-morrow. So that... So that inevitably, at nine o'clock this evening, Arsène Lupin, on his way to the Great Oak, will take the patrol path that follows the old ramparts and skirts the ruins of the chapel. I shall be there in the ruins. I shall be there too, said the Duc de Sarzeau-Vendôme, quietly, taking down a gun. It was now five o'clock. The duke talked some time longer to his nephew, examined the weapons, loaded them with fresh cartridges. Then, when night came, he took d'Amboise through the dark passages to his bedroom and hid him in an adjoining closet. Nothing further happened until dinner. The duke forced himself to keep calm during the meal. From time to time he stole a glance at his son-in-law and was surprised at the likeness between him and the real d'Amboise. It was the same complexion, the same cast of features, the same cut of hair. Nevertheless, the look of the eye was different, keener in this case, and brighter, and gradually the duke discovered minor details which had passed unperceived till then, and which proved the fellow's imposture. The party broke up after dinner. It was eight o'clock. The duke went to his room and released his nephew. Ten minutes later, under cover of the darkness, they slipped into the ruins, gun in hand. Meanwhile, Angélique, accompanied by her husband, had gone to the suite of rooms which she occupied on the ground floor of a tower that flanked the left wing. Her husband stopped at the entrance to the rooms and said, "'I'm going for a short stroll, Angélique. May I come to you here when I return?' "'Yes,' she replied. 
he left her and went up to the first floor, which had been assigned to him as his quarters. The moment he was alone, he locked the door, noiselessly opened a window that looked over the landscape and leaned out. He saw a shadow at the foot of the tower, some hundred feet or more below him. He whistled and received a faint whistle in reply. He then took from a cupboard a thick leather satchel, crammed with papers, wrapped it in a piece of black cloth and tied it up. Then he sat down at the table and wrote, "'Glad you got my message, for I think it unsafe to walk out of the castle with that large bundle of securities. Here they are. You will be in Paris on your motorcycle in time to catch the morning train to Brussels, where you will hand over the bonds to Z, and he will negotiate them at once. P.S. As you pass by the great oak, tell our chaps that I'm coming. I have some instructions to give them. But everything is going well. No one here has the least suspicion.' He fastened the letter to the parcel and lowered both through the window with a length of string. "'Good,' he said. "'That's all right. It's a weight off my mind.' He waited a few minutes longer, stalking up and down the room and smiling at the portraits of two gallant gentlemen hanging on the wall. "'Horace de Sarzeau-Vendôme, Marshal of France, and you, the great Condé, I salute you, my ancestors both. Lupin de Sarzeau-Vendôme will show himself worthy of you.' At last, when the time came, he took his hat and went down. But when he reached the ground floor, Angélique burst from her rooms and exclaimed, with a distraught air, "'I say, if you don't mind, think you had better—' And then, without saying more, she went in again, leaving a vision of irresponsible terror in her husband's mind. "'She's out of sorts,' he said to himself. "'Marriage doesn't suit her.' He lit a cigarette and went out, without attaching importance to an incident that ought to have impressed him. Poor Angélique, this will all end in a divorce. The night outside was dark, with a cloudy sky. The servants were closing the shutters of the castle. There was no light in the windows, it being the Duke's habit to go to bed soon after dinner. Lupin passed the gatekeeper's lodge, and, as he put his foot on the drawbridge, said, "'Leave the gate open. I am going for a breath of air. I shall be back soon.' The patrol path was on the right, and ran along one of the old ramparts, which used to surround the castle with a second and much larger enclosure, until it ended at an almost demolished postern gate. The, the park, which skirted a hillock and afterward followed the side of a deep valley, was bordered on the left by thick coppices. "'What a wonderful place for an ambush,' he said. "'A regular cutthroat spot.' He stopped, thinking that he heard a noise. But no, it was a rustling of the leaves and yet a stone went rattling down the slopes, bounding against the rugged projections of the rock. But strange to say, nothing seemed to disquiet him. The crisp sea-breeze came blowing over the plains of the headland, and he eagerly filled his lungs with it. What a thing it is to be alive, he thought. Still young, a member of the old nobility, a multimillionaire. What could a man want more? At a short distance he saw against the darkness the yet darker outline of the chapel, the ruins of which towered above the path. A few drops of rain began to fall, and he heard a clock strike nine. He quickened his pace. There was a short descent, then the path rose again, and suddenly he stopped once more. A hand had seized his. He drew back, tried to release himself. But someone stepped from the clump of trees against which he was brushing, and a voice said, "'Shh! Not a word!' He recognized his wife, Angélique. "'What's the matter?' he asked. She whispered so low that he could hardly catch the words. "'They are lying in wait for you. They are in there.'
the ruins with their guns. Who? Keep quiet. Listen. They stood for a moment without stirring. Then she said, They're not moving. Perhaps they never heard me. Let's go back. But come with me. Her accent was so imperious that he obeyed without further question. But suddenly she took fright. Run! They are coming! I'm sure of it! True enough, they heard a sound of footsteps. Then, swiftly, still holding him by the hand, she dragged him with irresistible energy along a shortcut, following its turns without hesitation in spite of the darkness and the brambles, and they very soon arrived at the drawbridge. She put her arm in his. The gatekeeper touched his cap. They crossed the courtyard and entered the castle, and she led him to the corner tower in which both of them had their apartments. "'Come in here,' she said. "'To your rooms?' Yes. Two maids were sitting up for her. Their mistress ordered them to retire to their rooms on the third floor. Almost immediately after, there was a knock at the door of the outer room, and a voice called, Angélique. Is that you, father? she asked, suppressing her agitation. Yes. Is your husband here? We have just come in. Tell him I want to speak to him. Ask him to come to my room. It's important. Very well, father. I'll send him to you. She listened for a few seconds, then returned to the boudoir where her husband was, and said, "'I'm sure my father is still there.' He moved as though to go out. "'In that case, if he wants to speak to me—' "'My father is not alone,' she said quickly, blocking his way. "'Who is with him?' "'His nephew, Jacques d'Amboise.' There was a moment's silence. He looked at her with a certain astonishment, failing quite to understand his wife's attitude but without pausing to go into the matter. Ah, so that dear old d'Amboise is there, he chuckled. Then the fat's in the fire. Unless, indeed... My father knows everything, she said. I overheard a conversation between them just now. His nephew has read certain letters. I hesitated at first about telling you. Then I thought of my duty. He studied her afresh, but at once conquered by the queerness of the situation, he burst out laughing. <laughs> what don't my friends on board ship burn my letters and they have let their prisoner escape the idiots oh and you don't see to everything yourself no matter it's distinctly humorous d'amboise versus d'amboise oh but suppose i were no longer recognized suppose d'amboise himself were to confuse me with himself he turned to a wash-hand stand took a towel dipped it in the basin and soaped it and in the twinkling of an eye, wiped the make-up from his face and altered the set of his hair. "'That's it,' he said, showing himself to Angélique under the aspect in which she had seen him on the night of the burglary in Paris. "'I feel more comfortable like this for a discussion with my father-in-law.' "'Where are you going?' she cried, flinging herself in front of the door. "'Why, to join the gentleman?' "'You shall not pass.' "'Why not?' "'Suppose they kill you.' "'Kill me?' That's what they mean to do, to kill you, to hide your body somewhere. Who would know of it? Very well, he said. From their point of view, they are quite right. But if I don't go to them, they will come here. That door won't stop them, nor you, I'm thinking. Therefore, it's better to have done with it. Follow me, commanded Angélique. She took up the lamp that lit the room, went into her bedroom, pushed aside the wardrobe, which slid easily on hidden casters pulled back an old tapestry hanging, and said, "'Here is a door that has not been used for years. My father believes the key to be lost. I have it here. Unlock the door with it. 
A staircase in the wall will take you to the bottom of the tower. You need only draw the bolts of another door and you will be free. He could hardly believe his ears. Suddenly he grasped the meaning of Angélique's whole behaviour. In front of that sad, plain, but wonderfully gentle face, he stood for a moment discountenanced, almost abashed. He no longer thought of laughing. A feeling of respect, mingled with remorse and kindness, overcame him. "'Why, why are you saving me?' he whispered. "'You are my husband.' He protested. "'No, no, I have stolen that title. The law will never recognize my marriage.' "'My father does not want a scandal,' she said. "'Just so,' he replied sharply. "'Just so. I foresaw that, and that was why I had your cousin d'Amboise near at hand. Once I disappear, he becomes your husband. He is the man you have married in the eyes of men. You are the man I have married in the eyes of the church.' "'The church! The church! There are means of arranging matters with the church. Your marriage can be annulled. On what pretext that we can admit?' He remained silent, thinking over all those points which he had not considered, all those points which were trivial and absurd for him, but which were serious for her, and he repeated several times, oh, "'This is terrible! This is terrible! I should have anticipated!' And suddenly, seized with an idea, he clapped his hands and cried, "'There, I have it! I'm hand in glove with one of the chief figures at the Vatican. The Pope never refuses me anything.' I shall obtain an audience, and I have no doubt that the Holy Father, moved by my entreaties. His plan was so humorous and his delight so artless that Angélique could not help smiling, and she said, I am your wife in the eyes of God. She gave him a look that showed neither scorn nor animosity, nor even anger, and he realized that she omitted to see in him the outlaw and the evildoer, and remembered only the man who was her husband, and to whom the priest had bound her until the hour of death. He took a step toward her, and observed her more attentively. She did not lower her eyes at first, but she blushed. And never had he seen so pathetic a face, marked with such modesty and such dignity. He said to her, as on that first evening in Paris, "'Oh, your eyes! The calm and sadness of your eyes! The beauty of your eyes!' She dropped her head and stammered, "'Go, go away, go!' In the presence of her confusion he received a quick intuition of the deeper feelings that stirred her, unknown to herself. To that spinster soul, of which he recognized the romantic power of imagination, the unsatisfied yearnings, the poring over old-world books, he suddenly represented, in that exceptional moment and in consequence of the unconventional circumstances of their meetings, somebody special, a Byronic hero, a chivalrous brigand of romance. One evening, in spite of all obstacles, he, the world-famed adventurer, already ennobled in song and story, and exalted by his own audacity, had come to her and slipped the magic ring upon her finger, a mystic and passionate betrothal, as in the days of Corsair and Hernani. Greatly moved and touched, he was on the verge of giving way to an enthusiastic impulse and exclaiming, "'Let us go away together. Let us fly. You are my bride, my wife. Share my dangers, my sorrows, and my joys. It will be a strange and vigorous a proud and magnificent life. But Angélique's eyes were raised to his again, and they were so pure and so noble that he blushed in his turn. This was not the woman to whom such words could be addressed. He whispered, Forgive me. I am a contemptible wretch. I have wrecked your life. No, 
she replied softly. On the contrary, you have shown me where my real life lies. He was about to ask her to explain, but she had opened the door and was pointing the way to him. Nothing more could be spoken between them. He went out without a word, bowing very low as he passed. A month later, Angélique de Sarzeau-Vendôme, Princesse de Bourbon-Condé, lawful wife of Arsène Lupin, took the veil and, under the name of Sister Marie-Auguste, buried herself within the walls of the Visitation Convent. On the day of the ceremony, the mother superior of the convent received a heavy sealed envelope containing a letter with the following words. For Sister Marie-Auguste's poor. Enclosed with the letter were five hundred banknotes of a thousand francs each. End of chapter 8